scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin. And this is the last uh, section of Luke. Uh, I believe we started the series on Luke two years ago. So this would be sermon 113 on the book of Luke. Uh, so uh, what a ride it's been. What a long, strange trip it's been, Jerry, hasn't it been? Okay, Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Well, my uh, sabbatical is coming up. For some of you that don't know that, uh, the church has graciously given uh, me three months from May 15th to August 15th to recharge the batteries. Uh, this is a principle in ministry after seven years. Uh, the word Sabbath not only means rest, but it also means stop. And uh, I'm always constantly learning uh, in order to give out. Uh, but this is going to be a great opportunity for me just to stop and reflect and uh, to be with the Lord and to learn for myself and to come back re-energized and recharged uh, to, in my preaching and teaching and ministry. Well, one of the things I'm doing, as you know, is I'm going to Israel. I'm going to go there for two weeks and I'm going on a pilgrimage from, uh, I'm going to be walking from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, and uh, so uh, I'm starting to get supplies together because it's a, you know, a 40 mile type journey and, um, and so I have to pack my essentials so I brought some of my essentials here I have my uh, headlamp here in case things get a little bit dark you know I can hit the headlamp here in fact I think I might just preach like this so you can feel like the, sh the light is shining upon there was a light around his face as he spoke I don't know what it was you know probably more apropos is my medical kit in case I fall down a gorge or am attacked by serpents in the desert you know it's always good to have a little medical kit you know it's interesting when you're packing for a trip if you're not careful by the time you're done you're carrying a pack that weighs 60 pounds because there's always something you can add right who here hasn't gone on a vacation or a trip and you just need a couple of things and then it comes time to load the minivan and you're stuffing stuff in the back. 
well that's not going to work on this trip and so it's about the essentials only the essentials are what are necessary in the end for this trip as I was working through my packing list I got to thinking about life and asking the question what is it that is ultimately essential what do we really need Neil Cavuto came out with a book called The Things That Matter Most. What are the essentials if we were to sort of pare down our life to the very bare things that we need? And the truth of the matter is most of the things we have are extraneous and frankly distracting. They don't necessarily bring life. Truth of the matter is they're the rest of those 60 pounds that we're carrying on our back. And so I think that's uh, a good summary of the book of Luke. I think that's what Jesus is doing here at the end. Is calling out to us the essentials about what we really need for life in the end. What is this thing all about in the end? So I think there are really only three things in the end that we need. The essentials of life, if you will. To live the life that God has called us to. Three things. Number one, we need a life worth living for. We need somebody worth loving, worth living for. We don't simply live for ourselves. It's not the way mankind is wired. We need a life worth living for. Number two, we need a plan worth fighting for. What is it that I'm going to give my life to, that I'm going to give my heart to, that at the end of my 70, 80 years of existence, if God so blesses us, I can look back and say I was part of something that was worthy of my life, that was worthy of my heart. We need a life worth living for. We need a plan worth fighting for. And finally, we need a faith that overcomes. That as we're living out this plan, as we're loving this life, that this faith that gives us the strength to stay on the path when we're tempted to quit, when we want to stop, when we want to give up, when we say no more, it's not worth it. We need a life worth living for, a plan worth fighting for, and a faith that overcomes all. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So let's look at these three things. Number one, a life worth living for. As the disciples here, as this scene opens, the disciples we know are actually hiding in a room. In fact, John 20, the parallel passage says they're locked in a room for fear of the Jews meaning the, the administration that is going to come and arrest them. They are afraid. They're not also only afraid, they are also in disbelief. The women have come to them and they've said, look, we had a vision. The angels told us that he's not here, he's risen. And yet they refuse to believe. And now these two disciples from Emmaus have come and said, we saw the risen Christ. And yet at the opening of this passage, they're not celebrating, but rather they're discussing and ruminating and wondering what it could mean. They're imprisoned by fear and disbelief. Now why are they so disappointed and defeated? Well, that's a simple answer, isn't it? Because he's gone. His disciples, when Jesus was with them, they were safe. Because they were with Jesus. There was nothing he couldn't do. And they loved him. And he loved them. See the important thing to understand about these disciples was they didn't sign up for a movement. They didn't sign up for a religion. They signed up for him. 
Jesus simply went to them and said, come follow me. And they went. All of their hopes and dreams were on him. Indeed, in Mark 3, it says, when Jesus appointed the disciples, he appointed 12 designating apostles that they might be with him. See, Christianity is not at the end a movement or a religion. Christianity is a person. And to them, he was gone. Why is it so hard for them to believe? Because he was the way, the truth, and the life. And he's gone. It doesn't make sense to them. I mean, they were there in the boat when Jesus stood up on the Sea of Galilee that was raging and said, Shh, be quiet. And saw the water still. They were there when he raised the widow's son. They were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he gave sight to the blind. They saw Jesus and the miracles that he performed. He can't die, but he has. And the consequences of that have set in, because if he can die, then he can't save them from death. That in the end, evil does win. Bad does triumph over good, and all is for naught. The disciples didn't realize that the greater miracle was not in dying, but rather in dying and overcoming death. And so in the midst of their disappointment and despair, Jesus appears. Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. You see how even when Jesus is in their presence, they're still disbelieving. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus can read their minds. He knows them so well. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, why did Jesus have to come back? Why did Jesus want to come back? Because he wanted to give them a certainty that he has not gone anywhere. That all that he spoke, that all that they hoped is forever. That it can never change. Can't you see the picture of them coming around Jesus and touching his face and feeling him and, and just experiencing? And Isn't it interesting where Jesus asked them to touch? Touch my hands. See the marks. Touch my feet. Look at my side. But it wasn't a battered, bruised, and bloodied body, wasn't it? No, it was whole and triumphant and beautiful and yet still bore the scars. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is it says that they disbelieved for joy. They wanted to not believe but they couldn't help but believe because what was in front of them was so convincing that they had to believe. And then Jesus throws out this line. Do you guys have anything to eat? Isn't that hilarious? I think he's having a good time with this, isn't he? He wants to show them, I'm real. And so he eats right in front of them. See, Jesus wanted his disciples to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am here and I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Luke gives a very abbreviated period of the time that Jesus had with the disciples. But if we put together the four Gospels, we realize that Jesus had over a period of 40 days before he went up to heaven. Multiple times in which he met with the disciples and taught them about the kingdom of God and prepared them for ministry. See, this is the reason why at Pentecost, they're out there proclaiming the gospel so boldly and so fearlessly. Remember in the chapter Acts 4 where they're preaching and the Sanhedrin, you know, flogs them and says, stop talking about this man. And they say, judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They couldn't help it. They couldn't help speaking because they knew it was the truth. See, my friends, our salvation is not based on a principle. It's based on a person who lived and died and rose again. That's why the scriptures say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And because He is my salvation, of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And because He is alive then, He is alive now. And because He was here then, He's here now. Because Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. One of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, who lived in the early 1900s. He was a famous author and literary critic and, and poet and journalist in London. And he became a Christian. And Chesterton was approached by a newspaper reporter who said, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Certainly, replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked the reporter squarely in the eye and said, He is. In other words, Christ is here now. Oh, you can't see Him, but that doesn't mean that He's not here. See, as Brennan Manning says, there is, we must trust in a present risenness of Christ. Because the resurrection was not just for them. It was for us. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And go and make disciples. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Should we not expect him to be actively present in our lives? So are we like the disciples? Living in fear. Living in unbelief. Is your faith alive? I know you may agree with the principles of Christianity and the creeds and the truths of Christianity. But are you looking for the living Christ who is active and working? See, we must be alive to moments and events in the daily humdrum of life. Looking for Him to invade in our space, to touch our lives. To engage our world. Our faith is not in principles. Our faith is not in something that happened 2,000 years ago alone. Our faith is in Him. And He is here. As such, we have a life worth living for. Christ is with us. Do you see Him? 
This brings me to my second point. If we have a life worth living for, we have a plan worth fighting for. Jesus goes on in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You know, we actually just read about this, didn't we, last week, in the road to Emmaus. It's like he's replaying the tape. Remember how he's with those two disciples? They don't get it. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opened the scriptures and explained to them everything about himself. See, Jesus not only wants us to commune with us, he wants us to understand his plan. He wants us to see what life is all about. What he has been doing. What he's going to do. He wants us to see and understand Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. He's telling them, this is why I had to die and this is why I have to live. You know why it's so important that we understand what Christ has done and what Christ is doing? Because he does not want us to be ignorant about life. The truth of the matter is most people are utterly ignorant about the most important things of life. If I was to stop someone on the street corner and ask the question, why are we here? Most people would say, I, I, I don't know. What about the question, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen? I have no idea. Well, what happens when you die? Surely you know that your life is finite I hadn't considered the question. Is there any hope for mankind whatsoever? I don't know. Or maybe the answer they have is, no, there isn't any. But these are questions that we understand if we know Jesus Christ, if we know His Scriptures. See, when you're blind, you'll follow the loudest voice that shouts to you. And there's so many voices that are calling to us that are ultimately going to lead you right off the cliff. But Jesus wants to give us understanding so we can live with peace in the world that we are. Some of you know my oldest son died three years ago. And as tragic that, as that was, what would have been even more tragic for me is if I did not have the ability to understand what was happening. To be able to put in the context of how could something like this happen? Where is God in the middle of this? It was very interesting when my wife and I would go to some of these support groups and we'd sit down and you know, you'd kind of go around and people would talk. And then we would just share, you know, our pain and our grief, but our understanding of how God was right in the middle of it. And before you knew it, everybody was asking, and then they found out I was a pastor. And everybody's asking me questions and asking me questions. Because the vast majority of people there had no grasp or concept or understanding of how could this happen. And the result is they're trapped. They can't move on. There's a difference between not moving on because you don't want to and not moving on because you, you just can't. I found that I, I, could, I could never go to those groups anymore because I wasn't getting the support that I needed there. 
Jesus gives us eyes to understand. Not everything. Not exhaustive. But to be able to live with hope. To be able to live in a plan that's worth fighting for. Worth believing in. Because Jesus in this passage not only explains what has happened, but explains what will happen. Notice verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now this is different from the road to Emmaus, right? Last week as Jesus talked to those disciples, He said, wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? But here He says that the Christ will suffer these things and that repentance for sins will be preached, for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. It would appear that enter into His glory and repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations are in some way one and the same. How is that possible? See, what Jesus is saying is the time for proclamation of a message to go out is now. And that message is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from going one way and going the opposite way. The time has come for people who are walking in darkness, following false gods, living in a way that does not honor God and does not bring them peace, now a way has been opened where they can t turn back and they can walk the life that they were meant to live. They can love the God that they were meant to love. In other words, they can go from death to life. And in repentance, forgiveness for sins, the weight that they carry on their backs for the things that they have done can be taken off of their shoulders. Because in Christ's name, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And where will this start? It'll start in Jerusalem and you are witnesses. See, a plan that started in the beginning of time with the redemption of mankind is being inaugurated with these 12 that are going to go out proclaiming this message. And people are going to believe and turn and worship. And the Lordship of Christ is going to grow and grow and grow as He annexes the hearts of His people. That's what's going on right now, by the way. That's the plan that's worth living for. A kingdom that has been inaugurated, that is going forth. The only kingdom that ultimately is going to last. And we are a part of it. See, we weren't there, were we, at that time? We live in the United States of America, 2,000 years later. But the reality is, one of those people proclaimed that message and someone believed and shared it with someone else and so on and so on and so on and here we sit today. Repentant, following by faith under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
A new kingdom has been inaugurated. Worth living for, worth dying for. So which kingdom are you living in? One of my favorite characters in history is Napoleon Bonaparte. You know, Napoleon wasn't a short guy, first of all. But when in the end you lose, you're the short guy, right? Napoleon was this unbelievable figure. He was a strategic genius in the field. It was said that Napoleon's presence on the battlefield was worth 20,000 extra troops. He was that good. But ultimately he lost, didn't he? As all human people lose. And he was exiled uh, to St. Helena. And he would uh, call one of his generals to him, General Bertrand, and he would have conversations. Napoleon was a very wise man. And so one time he called his general to him and he asked him, what do you think about the person Jesus Christ? And Bertrand, General Bertrand said, I cannot conceive, sire, how a great man like you can believe that the supreme being ever exhibited himself to men under a human form with a body and a face and a mouth and eyes. Let Jesus be whatever you please. The highest intelligence, the purest heart. But he was simply a man who taught his disciples. Napoleon replied, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and what other, whatever other religion the distance of infinity. Christ speaks and at once generations become his by stricter, closer ties than those of blood, by the most sacred, the most indissoluble of all unions. He lights up the flames of a love that, which consumes self-love, which prevails over every other love. The founders of other religions never conceived of this mystical love, which is the essence of Christianity and is beautifully called charity. In every attempt to affect this, this thing, namely to mate himself beloved, man deeply feels his own impotence so that Christ's greatest miracle undoubtedly is the reign of this love. You speak of Caesar, of Alexander, of their conquests, and of the enthusiasm which they enkindled in the hearts of their soldiers. But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests with an army faithful and entirely devoted to his memory? My armies have forgotten me even while living as the Carthaginian army forgot Hannibal. Such is our power. A single battle loss crushes us and adversity scatters our friends. Can you conceive of Caesar as the eternal emperor of the Roman Senate and from the depths, depths of his mausoleum governing the empire, watching over the destinies of Rome? Such is the history of the invasion and conquest of the world by Christianity. Such is the power of the God of the Christians as such is the perpetual miracle of the progress of the faith and of the government of his church. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but upon what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. The empire of Christ, which was founded in his blood, 
and which was inaugurated through the testimony of these disciples, annexes the heart of millions who would die for him. This is a plan worth fighting for. He has not only given us himself, he's given us a bigger vision. So how big is yours? How do you see the world? It's a positive negative. I need to gain more. I need to build my kingdom. Or am I seeking to build the kingdom of Christ? Am I seeking to walk in repentance and obedience? To be a manifestation of what Christ has done in the world in my life? In the end, what is your testimony? Of me and my accomplishments and who I am and what I've done? Or of Christ and what He has done and what He's done in me and who I am in Him? Christ has given us a bigger vision because He wants us to experience a bigger joy. I love the quote that I put on the front of this meditation. Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can only satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. He gives us a life worth living for, a plan worth fighting for, and a faith that overcomes. At the end of his passage, at the end of the book, he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in, to the, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and, note, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What a different way they responded to the departing of Jesus Christ. At the cross they scattered, locked in a room for fear. But here... What did they do but respond in obedience? Walking boldly back into the city and in the temple blessing God. See, at the end of the day, we have a choice to respond in faith in obedience or to walk our own path in disbelief. Jesus said, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And through your, this Holy Spirit, I will give you mighty power that you will be able to walk in faith. But we have to choose how to respond. In obedience, through faith, or in disbelief. It's only when we respond in obedience and in faith that you will see Him. See, obedience and joy are tied together. The pathway to joy is paved with the stones of obedience. You want to see Christ and His plan? Walk in obedience to His word. 
by faith. Because as you walk the path of Christ, guess who's there with you? And when you walk away from the path of Christ, guess who runs after you? Praise the Lord. You can never go too far for He cannot rescue you back. But there's something about walking in faith and obedience. Maybe you've met a Christian like that. There's a relationship they have that you can't quite get a hold of. A sense of purpose and strength and peace. Now life isn't always easy. It's in sadness and sorrow. But there's hope. So I guess in the end it's really three things. Love. A love for a living person, Jesus Christ. Hope. Hope in a plan that will bring everything together and that will bring the world the way it was meant to be. And faith. A faith that can overcome our doubts. A faith that can overcome the world. There is a present risenness to Jesus. He's here in this room. He's here when you go home. He's here when you're all alone. And He's here when no one else is. Have you put your faith and your trust in Him? Bow the knee to the risen Christ. Follow in His path. Because Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is a person. A living person. Let's pray. The Lord God, our Father, Jesus, our Savior and King, we thank you that you are here with us. And though we can't see you by sight, by faith we can feel you. And as we walk in obedience, trusting you, Lord, the signs of your presence will be unmistakable. Lord, help us to respond in faith, not in unbelief. And as we walk, show yourself to us in new ways. Overcome the world and let your plan come to fruition, even in our lifetime. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.